0: It is that reality that we press against the evil in this world, that the kingdom of God must come to replace the evil in this world, that we pray for Advent because there is such a need to see those things undone, the weight and the pain, the realities and oftentimes the temptation to not see, to not want to have to see the brokenness and the pain around us in this world. And it is uh, in that spirit that we come to this passage in Jeremiah. And just so you remember the context, again, these this Advent series, this is now my 10th Advent with you. This Advent series, we're going to simply pick texts from the Advent readings and reflect on them and reflect about why they're a part of the readings that start off the church year, that kick off our expectations for what God can and does need to do, is doing, and will do in the year ahead. And so where we are in Jeremiah is that Jeremiah has been prophesying for at least a decade, if not more. And he's come to a place now where Jerusalem is surrounded. And the final judgment upon God's people in the area of how many times he will put up with ungodly kings and whether he will then remove Israel's independence, Judah's independence, and to see Jerusalem fall to Nebuchadnezzar. The great Babylon has come, and it is currently building siege ramps to the top of the walls around Jerusalem, and the clock is ticking And in the passage before, Jeremiah, even as he speaks against or at least prophesies what is going to happen, God continues to say, this is not the end of my business with you. This may be the logical conclusions of a season of your existence. And at some point, that will be addressed. But Jeremiah has gone out and bought a piece of property. Promise and a reminder that God does not forsake this world nor his people. That buying property in this planet, on this world, is worth doing. Being here, expecting to be settled here, first in this promised land of Israel, but the implications will stretch further into Jesus' kingdom, which encompasses the whole earth. So we have this context. They're surrounded by Babylon. Jeremiah has prophesied against the king and against Jerusalem and, of course, has been put in jail because that's what you do when you speak against the status quo. And the Lord comes to Jeremiah and continues to speak to him. We'll read verses 14 through 22 of Jeremiah 33. Hear now God's word. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the gracious promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. So remember, this is then a promise of restoring the two houses, because Israel, the unified kingdom was broken, and there was a northern kingdom called Israel, and there was a southern kingdom which included Jerusalem, which was Judah, And so God is saying, even that kingdom that I let be destroyed 150 years ago, almost 200 years ago, my promises to both of you will come true. Fulfill the gracious promise I made to the house of Israel, to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called, the Lord our righteousness. For this is what the Lord says, David will never fail to have a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel nor will the priests who are Levites ever fail to have a man to stand before me continuously to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to present sacrifices. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. This is what the Lord says. If you can break my covenant with day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night no longer come at their own appointed time, then my covenant with David, my servant, and my covenant with the Levites, who are priests ministering before me, can be broken, and David will no longer have a descendant to reign on his throne. I will make the descendants of David my servant, And the Levites who minister before me as countless as the stars in the sky and as measureless as the sands on the seashore. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is alive and sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, it does the business of rearranging your people into a pleasing offering. We thank you that it is bloodless. We pray that it would be bloodless. But we pray nonetheless that by your spirit we would be rearranged in the way that is right and good. And Lord, whatever is said this morning in the preaching of your word that is not right and good, may those words quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. It's uh, it's hard to determine sometimes, the rightness of God. Uh, the world is a confusing place, and it's hard to read the signs. We read a, a passage this morning. Jesus says that it's important for us to know the signs, to be able to read the world around us, and to know how to rightly live in and through it. I heard a podcast that uh, Monty recommended to me this uh, last week uh, by Richard Pratt, who does Third Millennial Ministries, which is a great ministry online. It's it's Great resources for training bivocational pastors around the world. And it's in dozens of languages. And it's wonderful, wonderful, solid teaching. And of course, he does a podcast because that's what we do. And he was making a comment about how they'd had pastors from China... Uh, In a discussion and they were speaking for about 20-30 minutes very aggressively on the same topic. And although he couldn't understand Chinese he could tell that they hadn't moved topics. And he finally asked the translator, he said, what are they talking about? And they were talking about whether or not a man could stand for ordination. A pastor could stand for ordination in the church in China if they hadn't been put in jail. If you hadn't served time for your faith... Were you reliable enough? Would you stand up under the pressure of ministry? Could you be ordained if you hadn't done time? I've done about 48 hours, but anyway, it's it's not an issue. (laughs) But one time was, you know, an abortion clinic thing. The other one is a whole other story. So maybe I could get a job in China. (laughs) But that idea of persecution for the truth of the faith, for the humbly confessing the reality of who God is in a culture that was dominated by an atheistic philosophy, a historical Confucius-Buddhist philosophy, somewhat morphed into by this Marxist-Leninist ideology. Anytime you preached grace and Christ and sacrifice and the dignity of all humanity and practiced love and generosity, Ideas ostensibly that socialism is supposed to uphold, but when you practice Christianity, true gospel economics, it brought attention by the government. It undermined the authority of the Chinese government, and they saw the church as a threat. They still do. They're trying to co-opt it to this day. To have that notion, in that suffering and persecution, to embrace it and to recognize we're suffering for our faith, And therefore, we want to know that the men and women who lead us are those who have borne the weight of that suffering and have known the times and endured it. But there are also times, and it wasn't just in Jerusalem uh, at about 450 B.C. when Jerusalem falls, And it wasn't just in Jerusalem in 70 A.D. when it falls again and finally in certain biblical texts. But there is a reality that we have to discern the times because sometimes the weight and the chaos of the world comes down on God's people, not because they have been righteous, but because they have been unrighteous. Because they have failed to live up to the ethics and character of their king. And so when we come before a passage like this, and we know the context here is one in which God has come to Israel and to Judah and said, no more, and yet I love you. I want us to look at what it means to have a God who is our righteousness and to ask ourselves about our willingness to accept the rightness of God's time The rightness of God's actions and the rightness of God's final work. So, first, the right time. We have a God who works over generations, we have a God who has faithfully sent prophets for hundreds of years calling and reminding God's people to come back, to live out the promises of the patriarchs, the promises of the promised land. We have a God who has promised to provide for Israel in such a fashion that she could take every seventh year off and there would be enough grain that the land could rest. A God who delighted to show grace and mercy to even those who were far off, the alien at the gate, by providing gleaning laws. Who provided not just sin sacrifices, and this is what's so amazing about this passage. One of the aspects that's so amazing about this passage is that in the rightness of God, he created times and seasons where the sacrifices that came before the Lord were not sacrifices for sin, but they were Fellowship. They were breaking bread together, precursors of the Lord's Supper that God delights to eat and to fellowship with his people. In the midst of difficulties and years where God called Israel back, he delighted to fellowship with them, with grain offerings. The problem, of course, is the timing. The timing. Some of us wish that the Lord would move more quickly in certain areas, that he would return. Every generation has, I would imagine, that pressure to say, Lord, come quickly. Paul prays for the Lord to come, to restore all that is needful in this world. But of course, the prophets also warn us to be careful about wanting the day of the Lord to come, because that is a dark and painful day. It is a day when those that we've prayed would come to know the Lord might come to the end of their time to make that choice. That in the Lord's timing, when judgment comes, when whether it is a glimpse of final judgment in a passage like this, or the actual final judgment that will come when our King returns the second time, It is an end. There is a finality to it. And so we're called to discern the times, as Jesus said, and to redeem the time because the days are evil, and to recognize that God's patience in time is something that we often are called to bear as believers. And who better? See, the challenge is that as Jeremiah bought that piece of property... He promised, he saw concretely the future of what God would do. But in the midst of that, even the faithful had to bear the burden, the weight of the judgment. They too existed in that chaos, just as faithful people in Jerusalem in 70 AD, who were a part of the church, endured the destruction of that city. It's also true, and we've talked about it before, that in those times of great suffering, in those times of great calamity throughout church history when God's people have been the ones who have prized not their own lives above their neighbor, but have prized life above death and served their neighbors even at risk to themselves. In those times, God brings many to himself and redeems the time. Because part of the understanding of time is that time for the believer is eternal. That the ending of this life is not the ending of life. And so Jeremiah, in the midst of this passage, looks out and he can see that there will be a time. When the righteous branch grows. We already read a passage from Isaiah. This reality that even as the tree is cut off and there seems like there is no hope. That there is a time that is coming in the midst of it. That this time that feels like it's ultimate. This time that feels as if God is absent. This time in which it feels like evil is winning is actually a time in which the world is being prepared for its true and righteous king the one whose timing and actions are perfect. It is also a warning that when that root grows, that righteousness will be established, that right actions and all those who fail or ignore or choose the more expedient route The more pragmatic route. Those actions ultimately do have a reckoning. There is a time limit on evil. There is a time limit on unrighteousness. And the time will come when that right leader, that right ruler who rules in justice and righteousness will be established. For us, that should be both glorious and terrifying. Not terrifying for our own souls, but terrifying for the world that Jesus loves and calls us to love. Those who do not know. Those, as evil as it is to sell a human being, to know that those people could choose to reject the righteousness of God in such a way that they would spend eternity left to their own devices. That those realities, that the time as it moves closer and as we discern it, is a time that is not simply our escape, it is judgment. Which leads us then to a discussion about the rightness of God's actions. You can't read these passages. We we wince at these passages. Though they simply describe the reality of what happens when one nation conquers another nation. These realities of what happens in war. These realities of what happens when cities are sacked. This description of the logical progress of what happens when one ignores God. One is left to simply the ebbs and flows of unrighteous action and who is stronger. When you abandon God and seek strength elsewhere, you are left to the strength that that can provide. And it's not sufficient. You will not be strong enough. Not always. At some point you get old and somebody gets stronger. Or you're young, but they invent a better way to kill you. And when God allows us to exist in the reality of our decisions, to pull His hand of protection back, and to allow us to feel the weight of our decisions, when we choose to use money as a means of security in those days where we either find ourselves cut off from all humanity because we have pursued nothing but money, and we've lost spouses and children and time, And we feel the weight of that. Or we have pursued beauty, or we have pursued power, or we have pursued fill in the blank. And we find our lives actually given over to those things. Our desire to judge others, and we find later and later in life that it's hard for us to see the goodness in anything. Because we have always compared ourselves to others. When we come to seasons of our life where we have tried to protect our children from the evil that is in the world, and then that evil surprised them because they've never seen it, never been introduced to it in the safety of a covenant relationship with God, and they're overwhelmed by it. Or perhaps we are too ashamed of our own evilness, our own sins, our own past as individuals or a culture. I was listening to a uh, report this week and it was about uh, the hanging of a bunch of Dakota Indians in 1863 during the Civil War. And uh, the end of the Dakota War and the uh, nice Minnesotans had won and uh, they were seeking to sort of establish a a clear understanding of who was now in authority and they had a court, and they convicted like 300 uh, of the Braves, and they were going to string them up uh, for whatever reasons. And Lincoln was informed of this and discouraged them a little bit and counted it down to uh, a smaller number. In the end, they hung 38 men, uh, which is one of the largest mass hangings. Uh, interestingly enough, it wasn't in the South, which was what this commentator was figuring out because he grew up in the town in Minnesota where this had happened. And he had no idea that his, this park that he used to play in was the park in which one of the greatest bass hangings in United States history took place. Because it's kind of not fun to talk about. But then when we find ourselves in conversations about what happens in Warm Springs or what happens in White Swan, and our interaction, and our kids grow up and they think that we have done one successful, wonderful thing after another, and they find out that perhaps there may be a few skeletons in the closet, and they wonder if we have spoke rightly to them. Whether it is the evil in my own heart and the past that I have, And how I expose my children as they grow to their father's own failings and God's grace in the midst of it. It's not that there's no redemption, no restoration, no reconciliation with the Dakota Indians or with my own children and my failures. The point is, do we understand that the right actions of God come in line with our own decisions? And to the degree that we have hidden from ourselves as a culture or our family as individuals, that there are real reasons that our hearts are broken, that our actions are couched in fear. It is to deny our children an understanding both of the reality of the generational challenges that face us but also the opportunity to understand the restorative power of God to heal those wounds. If we can't acknowledge there are wounds, we don't need a God to heal them. If there is no evil that needs to be addressed among God's people, then we don't need a righteous king to rule us because we are right enough on our own. Because we want our kids to be able to discern the times. The children of Israel in this season of Jeremiah's life would have been wrong to believe that what was happening because of the Babylonians was a persecution of the world for their righteous declaration of the power of God. They were not being persecuted for their faith. They were reaping the judgment for their failure to live out their faith. And then there are times when you are living in Germany and you're hiding or you are a part of the Underground Railroad or any numerous ways in which we've seen God's people be faithful. And we've seen people like Stephen in Acts give the ultimate sacrifice for their faith. We have to discern the time. Is this a season in which, because of the righteousness of God's people, we may face in various places around the world persecution? Or could it be that there are times in which God's people face judgment? But if we don't know our history, if we don't know the times, we may misunderstand We may not recognize the lesson. And we may miss the rightness of God's actions. Lastly, there is the ultimate sense of rightness to begin with. The challenge of evaluating God and to trust that we have a king, a root of David, that is right and good and just that is difficult for us. It's either difficult because of our own selfish ambition or, quite frankly, it's also hard for us because of the goodness of the gospel that has transformed our understanding of life and the value of all humanity so that it is harder and harder for us to imagine the tragedies which were par for the course even a couple hundred years ago or in various parts of this world. And we see the promise of the kingdom, and we are children who have enjoyed the blessing of God's peace and his presence, and it makes it harder and harder for us sometimes to recognize what happens when God comes to judge what is truly evil, what is truly wrong, and the Mm -hmm. rightness of evil reaping the benefits of its own nature and its own condition. It is not an easy thing to do, and it can get very preachy. And so in this Advent season, when we wrestle with the need to have a God who comes back and restores rightness to all that is here, we come before a God who does present to us both a king and a priest who is faithful. It's so important that there is both in this passage, because one is one who rules over and establishes, and the other is what gives us connection to the divine and makes sure that our relationship and our connection to God is maintained. And the beauty of Christ is that he fills both. He is both our king and our priest. He comes to us both to rule us with love and mercy and righteousness And he is the one, as we read in Hebrews, who has gone through the heavens and is a righteous priest who understands both our brokenness and our failings because he experienced the temptations. He knew what it was to have people who loved him abandon him because he was speaking truth. He knew what it was to comfort people and to weep over Jerusalem. Because of what was going to come to them because of the right justice of God. And he says over that city, I long to gather you. As a hen gathers her chicks. See, we have a priest who wants to give himself that we might escape the realities of evil. He gives himself as a sacrifice because you and I could not die enough deaths to pay for the evil that humanity has reaped upon this world. He gave himself the ultimate humility. And we have one who even understands our sense of timing. Lord, if there be any other way. There's nothing glib, nothing simple, nothing that probably fits on a Christmas card about the reality of this king who comes, who gives himself in the midst of all of the darkness, who experiences the pain and alienation, so that you and I never will, so that we can face days of evil ahead, whether they are because of our own making, and we can say, I am not crushed, because I know my God will redeem me, and I understand that I must receive what is rightfully mine. But God has taken what is ultimately mine. I can even suffer unrighteously, the unrighteousness of others against me because of the proclamation of the faith. Who better to bear that weight because my Savior bears it for me? I don't need to be my own strength. I have one who is sufficient for all of this. It's why when we sometimes talk to our kids about these different kinds of ways of which suffering can enter our lives, we always told our kids, who better to suffer than us? In the small ways, and trust me, I have not suffered. But in theory, who better to suffer than those who have a righteous king whose security and comfort is in their sovereign and a priest who daily stands before the altar offering great offerings that I might have regular table fellowship with my king. Because I have everything guaranteed and secured because, and this is the culmination of the sermon, the covenant between day and night is not going to be broken. I can't break it. It's not going to be about how faithful I am. It's not going to be about how faithful the church is because we will fail. But because he will not break his covenant. It is easier to break the covenant with day and night than it is to break the covenant between God and his people. We need not fear whether the difficulties come because of justice or because of persecution. Both we can endure because day and night will not fail, nor will our God to establish the right kingship and a faithful priesthood. That we might enjoy those days when Jerusalem again, this entire creation, is a place where sheep graze in peace. Where evil is driven off. Where there will be no longer that fear of a day of judgment, nor the fear of persecution. But that the times will be those of peace. Times of peace. That is our hope. That is the sure joy of knowing Who the seed was, who the stump was, who grew up, who was the faithful king. We know who he is, and he reigns today. What Jeremiah would have given to see him seated at the right hand. He's seated. And we are at peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you be merciful to the preaching of your word. Lord, we do not want to suffer. We are not masochists. And yet, Lord, we know that whatever happens this side of glory is but a short period of time in relationship to eternity. Lord, may we be wise in discerning the times. Lord, let us not be distracted by evaluating the rightness of your work, but trusting in the goodness of our King that we might know the times and be wise in caring and living in line with who our King is. Trusting that our priest who stands before the Father has made all the necessary preparations, that we all now have direct access because there's only one priest who gave all that we needed. In Christ's name, amen.